Good morning. It's so good to see you here this morning. I I got the privilege today of going to first and second service, and the music at this church is just such a blessing to all of us. Thank you, Garrett and the team today. And first service, I was just, my jaw dropped. It was amazing. Um, So we're transitioning today, as Jared hinted at, in the welcome and announcement time. We've been talking the last month about prayer, and that's why we've got the prayer station here is to keep us in that mindset as we're carrying forward with us the things that we've learned throughout the last month. And today marks the transition from talking about prayer into talking about fasting. And we're going to be talking about that all throughout February. Now today is the change from prayer to fasting in theme, but also as you may have heard, today is the Super Bowl. That's right. I know the football schedule now that I'm, you know, working at church. I got it. I got it. And I also get that the very last thing you want to hear about on Super Bowl is a message about refraining from eating, right? Yeah. But, you know, when I consider some of the disastrous effects that Super Bowl food has had on my body, maybe fasting is a good idea. Um, A couple years ago, some people in here that were at the Super Bowl party, where my friend Matt brought the Octodog. Does anyone know what an Octodog is? I will explain. So you take a hot dog. And you cut the bottom of it, make like an X, and then you drop that hot dog. Your face isn't really funny right now. You drop that hot dog in sizzling oil, and it just curls up the four pieces. Do you, you get where I'm going with this? And it looks like a little octopus. I did not sleep well that night, I will say. It does not need to be tried. So, as I was preparing to talk today, I thought it would be helpful if I could maybe take a poll of all of you just to see if there's anyone here like me about our thoughts on fasting. Because I'm curious to know if there's anybody here who feels that fasting maybe is too ancient or a little bit outdated. I'm also wondering if somebody thinks that maybe it seems confusing or unrealistic given the demands of our lives or dietary needs and things like that. It maybe sounds a little bit undesirable to give up food or drink. And I think that sometimes fasting can even feel a little bit scary. And I'm curious, really, how you think about this, because I've got to admit to you, I don't talk about fasting much. I don't really know what you all think about fasting. I do participate in fasting in various ways, and sort of rhythmically throughout my life, but I don't really discuss it ever or work out the idea of it. And if you know me even a little bit, you know that I discuss and work out everything. So it's weird that I don't discuss or work this thing out. Now, the words that I just listed about fasting, truthfully, are the words that I've used throughout my life to describe the act of fasting. Outdated, confusing, unrealistic, undesirable, or even scary. And I'm guessing that some of you might feel or have felt the same way along the way. And so, I think we should talk about it. Now, over the last couple months, I'm going to admit that my fasting conversation quota has gone way up. And that is not because I've suddenly gotten a lot holier. It's because I knew today was coming and I was talking about fasting today. So I've learned so much through the conversations that I've had and the books that I've read that I really feel it's unfair to say that the message is Journey Together with Melissa Tucker. It really should be Journey Together with Melissa Tucker, sponsored by a whole bunch of other really smart people. So one of the great conversations that I had along the way, on New Year's Day, I was driving back from L.A. to San Diego with my two good friends, Leah and Micah, who are devout Jews. And we were talking about fasting. 
And they shared with me about the six routine fasts that they participate in every year with their communities. It is a way of life. And some of them take days and some are just half of a day. But they talked about those things. And then they also talked about kind of their lifelong fast, a commitment that they have made for the rest of their lives, not to eat shellfish or pork and then not to eat any item that has meat or dairy mixed in it. Now, certainly the devotion and the discipline that these fasts require really struck me as impressive. But I will say that more than even that, what stuck out to me was their emphasis on the communal nature of fasting. For them, fasting is something you do together and you talk about it. Now, they're dating, and so fasting for them strengthens their dating relationship because they have this built-in common discipline of avoiding certain foods every single day. And when you have to avoid certain foods, you've got to negotiate what you're going to cook and how you're going to do that and where you're going to shop, and you've got to prepare that together because it takes a lot of work. And then they talked also about how the fasting... Um, that they do with their community the six times a year binds them to their fellow family members and synagogue members like nothing else does. Because when they're fasting, they get together and they talk about it. And they talk about how annoying it can be. And they talk about how hard it is to do at times. But they also find solace in the comfort of each other. And they find great joy in the celebratory breaking of the fast in a meal together. It's a built-in way of life for them, and I've loved sitting with this notion of fasting that they've given me, especially considering that our general conception of fasting has become, or, or maybe it's just my general conception of fasting, that it is something you do when you need an answer from God, and you never, ever, ever are supposed to talk about it. So we're going to come back to that idea in a second. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see fasting as this whole body activity, Fasting really is this, this cool way in which our spirit, our mind, and our body come together in prayer in a way of praying that takes us over, actually. In, in biblical fasts, we see minor ones, which are 12 hours usually, or major ones, which can go up to 25 hours and involve a removal of food or drink. Some of the fasts that we see throughout the Bible were actually dictated to the community by God, and these are the fasts, the ritual fasts, that my friends Leah and Micah keep to this day. And then other times we see fasting as a personal choice by figures such as Esther or David. So in either case, whether it's a fast that's dictated for the community to practice or a personal choice in devotion to God, fasting mirrors a phenomenon that takes place Whenever we go through pain, or we lose really precious things, or we grieve death, or we grieve a loss, what happens to us in those times, and you know this, is that we just simply don't want to eat. It's kind of the last thing on our minds when we go through pain and suffering. Our bodies withdraw from food, actually, out of a real natural, biological, and psychological desire to create some space. And it's pretty subconscious. We're not even thinking about it but to create some space and hopefully to be fed by something different in those times of loss and pain. And so, when we set out to purposefully fast, fasting is a physical way that we emulate a similar kind of pain, grief, or loss that we can experience when we go to God to confess our sin, which can also feel pretty, pretty painful. 
when we go to God to admit fear about something, when we want to raise a need that we don't know what to do anything about, or when we want to register a complaint. And similarly with fasting, we expect in those times of confession or grieving or complaining to be filled up by something other than food. We hope in those times and we await the presence of God to fill us and to give us a response. So it's fitting that our text, Micah 6, 1 through 8, begins talking about bringing stuff to God. It says, hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Here we see God welcoming complaint, welcoming confession, wanting us to call out to the mountains whatever it is that we've got to bring. And God not only welcomes that, but then in the passage goes on to engage it and says, Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. God comes off pretty feisty, right? Like the sassy God right there. Okay. All right. So God receives the grief registers the complaint, and then pushes back on the people, reminding them that he has been faithful. He's brought them out of Egypt. And what do they do in response once they remember, yeah, right, 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 okay, God, you have been faithful. They ask, with what shall I come before the Lord? Their next response is to go into sort of sacrifice and action mode. The people of this passage start thinking up, what kinds of sacrifices, and they start considering some really massive sacrifices that they might bring as soon as they recall that they've been delivered. And they start thinking of things like 1,000 rams or rivers full of oil or even their firstborn child. I mean, that really makes my giving up coffee kind of pale in comparison, right? Like, not that big of a deal. Uh, So they're thinking of these, these big sacrifices, and we see in this a rhythm of of sort of how our dialogue with God often goes. We come to God with something, we bring something, whether we're complaining or we're seeking or we need something or we're confessing. So we come to God. And then in that, we trust God again. We remember that God has been good. And so then we're moved to act in some way to show our devotion. And then we wait. We wait to see what God has for us. So the people in this passage, they're grasping for a way to get that response from God. And that's when they think of the list of all of the things that they might sacrifice or bring to get that response and honor God. But then Micah does something, I think, a little bit surprising here. He throws us a reminder. He has told you what is good and the only thing that God requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So here we see a downplaying a bit of the sacrificial action in favor of these general tenets of justice, of mercy, and of humility. So in this passage, it's suggesting a movement away from legalistic action and toward freedom. Now, when I think about fasting, fasting doesn't seem terribly freeing. It actually feels kind of constricting or restrictive. Fasting seems to fit along the lines of the things that the people were were coming up with to sacrifice, to give up, 
<clears throat> the things that God actually was countering in the passage by saying that what's required is justice, mercy, and humility. So given the passage, it then leads me to ask, well, then why fast? But as I sat with this passage a little bit more, a new question arose for me, which this always happens. I start out a little stubborn, and then God gives me a different question. And the new question is, what does the Micah passage here have to teach us about how we go about fasting? Now, we are a month away from Lent, and Lent is one of the few rhythmic, regular fasts that us Protestants have decided to hold on to. Lent is a 40-day-long season leading up to Easter, and it actually mirrors the 40 days that Jesus was wandering around in the desert, contemplating his mission in prayer. It's following his baptism. It's a holy time, and he's resisting temptation throughout. And during our time of Lent, there's no prescribed thing to give up, per se. Rather, it's a general call for us to consider what kind of food or drink or other habit or thing that's a part of our lives we might want to give up in a way of our choosing. And like the six Jewish fasts a year that Leah and Micah taught me about, the Lenten fast is a communal one. We're invited to enter into it together with Christians all across the world who are doing the same thing. And in that, we are agreeing to sacrifice something so that we can find out what we're going to be filled up with instead. Lent, for us, is really like this built-in opportunity for us to do something sort of radical and different together. And, like Leah and Micah, might consider, during the coming Lenten fast, to open up a little bit more about it, to talk with each other about it, during the time to look at our communal sin, or the areas where we've lacked discipline in our community. Maybe it could be a time where we discuss what it is that we're each confessing during that time, and what God is teaching us through it. Maybe even we commiserate with, the, with each other. We get together and we talk about how hard it is to keep the fast. Lauren Winter talks about how a lack of food in fasting quiets our body. It slows us down because our muscles without food, even for a little bit of time, just can't move quite as fast. Our brain slows down. The synapses do not fire as quickly without the food that we're used to putting in it. And that slowness has a real advantage for us. It really helps us quiet down and reflect on what our hunger has to teach us. It's a challenge to how fast we're able to move, and it's a challenge to our values that we place on productivity and efficiency. So maybe during Lent, as we experience that slowing from fasting, maybe that's what we get together and talk about. What's the slowing teaching us? Fasting also has a way of freeing up our resources. What we give up in fasting is then available to be given to others. The money we would spend on meals or coffee or whatever the thing is that we're, we're going without actually becomes a freed-up resource for something else. And when we give up something and we find that we get along just fine without it, we realize that we need so much less than we think we do to be okay. And that prompts a real generosity in the moment because we've got a little bit of extra to do something with. And I think it can also prompt a simplicity, stripping down in general, so that generosity can become more a way of life for us. Maybe those are the kinds of things we'll talk to each other about during Lent. How are we being prompted toward generosity and simplicity in that time? Fasting also gives us new eyes with which to see the world around us. 
ways for us to think about how we're complicit without even realizing it in oppression through the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone, the things that we didn't even know were happening. We're reminded when we go without food for a while that those in power never have to go without food. They always have it available. And so fasting becomes a way, a radical way, in which we can resist some power structures. We can turn it upside down. We can rethink about the power structures that keep people categorized into groups of people who have and people who have less. And a solidarity can begin to grow in us when we give up something. A solidarity which is the ability to understand a little bit more about what it is that other people go through on a daily basis. People who have no choice to go with less. And as a result, we can be prompted to work to right these unjust systems. That's tough stuff to work through. It's big stuff. And maybe Lent, as we give up things and realize what other people go without, gives us an opportunity to dialogue about how we give better, to be in solidarity with each other, on others. Because in Lent we fast together, it follows that we as a people will confess together during that period of time. And it actually, that confession together can give us some courage to ask questions, tough questions like, how are we spending our money? Who's been left out? Who's our neighbor? What are we really focusing on? Are we remembering to take care of the poor? These are like deep, hard questions to ponder, not just in private, but with each other as well, trusting that God will honor the fasting, honor the confessing, and show up and give us some answers and direction. So I'm inviting us to do this together. Let's try this fasting thing together. And I encourage us to bring Micah along with us. Let's go back to Micah for a minute, okay? And return to the passage. Was Micah in the passage really saying that God disapproves of the sacrifices and the fasts that we do in search of God? Does God want us to move away from very specific bodily shows of our devotion and trust? I don't think that's what God is saying in the passage. Though at first glance, it kind of comes off like that. I do think that what Micah is reminding us is that the emphasis on fasting or sacrificing cannot be on the actual fasting and the sacrificing. And that's kind of tough to do with fasting. Because in fasting, we kind of can't help but be focused on our hunger. We kind of can't help but pay attention to what's happening to our body during that time. We're pretty ruled by our natural urges to eat and the love of certain foods. But that's why this whole fasting thing is so genius. Because fasting cultivates in us a discipline, and discipline is always good for us. It always produces good things. And fasting creates a space for us to receive something new and see something in a different way. It builds in new perspective. But fasting, in and of itself, is not what makes us holy, and it's not the the thing that pleases God. Fasting is a tool. It's, It's a tool like all of the other sacrifices listed in Micah 6. The calves, the rams, the rivers of oil, the babies. It's a tool. It's a sacrificial tool to get us to the place where we confess the ways in which we have not been just. We have not been merciful or not been humble. 
And then, in confession, as we come to God to talk about the ways we have not been those things, we receive from God a forgiveness and a fresh imagination for ways in which we might live better with each other, ways in which we might be just, merciful, and humble with each other. And this confession and receiving this fresh imagination for a new way of living together from God, this is what makes us holy. And this is what pleases God. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, so much for this word that is so freeing from Micah. Help us to really live it out well and help us to find courage to give fasting a try and to try it together. We thank you so much for these people all around us to make the journey with. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion. And so to transition from talking about fasting to communion, I want to share with you a word from Scott McKnight. He's written a fantastic book on fasting, and I got to hear him speak about it on the PLNU campus last year. And he says this about the relationship between fasting and communion. Christians were in a fasting condition when they took of the Lord's Supper, and that meal, the Lord's Supper, actually broke their fast. A fast in response to and in repentance from one's sins. The Lord's Supper prepared the Christian for the intoning power of Christ's death, represented in the eating and the drinking of the body and the blood. Now, you may not have fasted coming in here today. You you may have eaten breakfast, and that's cool. (laughs) What his comment sparks for me mostly is how crucial confession is to all that we do. And in this moment, we are invited to come to the table. It's a table of grace, meaning that here we find forgiveness of sin and we find the gifts of God's goodness to us once again. It is also a table of remembering because as we come to the table and we take the bread and the juice, we follow as the disciples did Christ's command to take these elements and to remember in them his sacrifices and his love for us. And this is also a table of welcome. We invite anyone who desires to participate to come forward in just a moment, whether or not you're a regular attender of this church or whether or not you're a Nazarene, all are welcome if you desire to come. And of course, if you would prefer not to participate, that is perfectly okay as well. It is to me very, very fitting that on a morning like this, when we've considered fasting, we sit facing the only food that we believe we really need. The holy meal that gathers us and reminds us whose we are. To prepare to take communion this morning, let us take a few quiet moments to confess and give praise to God. And after that silent moment, I'll offer a prayer and then I'll invite you forward for communion. Let's, let's take a moment of silence. <clears throat> 